Am I good? Yay. All right. Let me get situated here. I just need y'all to not judge me that this microphone is going to hang down all morning long, and it's just going to be okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, um, let me tell you a little bit about myself as a kid. Um, I, I was never a kid who fit in anywhere. Um, probably because I'm a little awkward, like to this day, I'm a little awkward. Uh, but I, I was never a kid that had like a really close group of friends. Um, I never had a, a place in school that I, that I really fit in. I never had like a group that I sat at lunch with. Uh, the closest I ever came was I was in choir. I was a choir kid, but, but even there, I never really had a place that I fit in. Um, most of the time you could find me with a book Somewhere in my hand, you can still find me. I 90% of the time still carry around a book because I'm looking for that moment that I can, I can dive in somewhere. Um, so I was desperate to belong as a child. Um, I don't know if any, of you, I, if any of you can relate to that, but I was just so desperate to be a part of something, and I wanted to feel like I had a group of people who liked me and loved me and, and would include me in all the fun things. And so since I didn't really have that in real life, I searched for it in other places, and I searched for it in, in literature and on TV, and I was, I'm an elder millennial. I was born in 1981, so as I was thinking through how I was going to illustrate this to you this morning, I brought a few examples of places that I wasn't, I didn't belong in real life, but in my mind, I belonged. <laughs> so let me, let me show you this verse, and this, this first one is um, from, again, from the world of books. And I apologize if, if this, okay, so this is the Babysitter's Club. If you're not familiar, let me just tell you that um, OG members, fans of the Babysitter's Club, can remember that on the back of the books, they used to have the Babysitter's Club phone numbers. I racked up a long-distance bill desperate to call Christy. I really wanted her to pick up the phone so that I could be in the Babysitter's Club. So this was my first place of trying to belong. Um, I desperately wanted to be in the BSC. Um, I also loved television shows where we saw people engage and, and do life together and be groups of friends. And maybe you didn't know this show, but I loved this show called A Different World. This show was a spinoff from the Cosby show when Denise went to college, and I loved Dwayne Wayne and his glasses. One of my favorite shows ever to watch. I love Whitley, and this was a groundbreaking show. I would actually encourage you to go back and watch this show if you hadn't, because A Different World really wrestled with a lot of important issues um, about economics and race and it just painted this beautiful picture of what it looked like for a group of people, a group of young people and a few people in the generations ahead of them to go through life together. And I just remember, I wanted to be, I wanted to be, I wanted to laugh at Dwayne Wayne in person. I wanted to try on his glasses. I wanted to be part of that crew. Another example I thought of was, um, okay, the Golden Girls, right? I remember being a little girl and my mom would let me stay up. I think they were on late but my mom would sometimes let me stay up and watch Golden Girls. And I just loved how they, through humor, experienced some really tough life things together. There were some really valuable lessons that were shared around that table. And um, who didn't love laughing at Rose? <laughs> laughing with Rose, right? Um, let's see, another one that I used to just really enjoy. Okay, right? Who didn't want to be Kelly Kapowski? right, <laughs> as a young kid growing up in the 90s, but 
you know, really there was something here with Zach and Slater and Lisa and how they navigated the difficulties of going through high school together. And I was convinced that this is what high school was going to be like. When I grew up, I was sorely wrong. <laughs> but I wanted to be just like these kids um, and learn how to do the sprain. And that's an obscure joke if you don't know Saved by the Bell. <laughs> I struggled a little bit. Uh, as I was trying to figure out some modern-day examples of what this looked like, the closest I could come to a show that I've watched, well, first of all, I forgot this one, Friends, right? Of course, Friends was a great example to us in the 90s of what it looked like for a group of adults to try to navigate career and life change and meeting life milestones together. But after Friends, I kind of hit, like, I, I, I was trying to struggle through, like, what are some examples on modern-day television that, that, could illustrate this. The closest I could come was Ted Lasso. Do we have any Ted Lasso fans here? Yeah. Um, I just, I will give you the disclaimer, there is bad language in the show. So I'm not telling you to go watch it, um, but it is one of the most redemptive stories that you will find on television today. And it's really one of the only examples that I could think of, of a group of people who are committed to doing life together, to fighting through some really difficult circumstances and, and being willing to stick together as a group. I, I realized that as a kid, watching these groups of people, these small groups of people wrestle through hard stuff and stay committed to one another, that, that I was learning something about friendship in real life. And I wonder if the struggle that that I had finding something in today's contemporary pop culture isn't a little bit of art imitating life. I wonder if the small, close-knit circles that we used to see illustrated in literature and on television have been disappearing in today's culture. And here's what I think has changed, especially in the last 10 years. I think our increasingly technological world has given us connection at our fingertips, but this is the big, big, I think, thing to acknowledge here. It's, it's forming us to believe that that connection is bite-sized and that proximity to people has very little value. We're satisfied today with a text when what should have been made was a call, or a lunch, or a dinner date. We believe that the person that we engage with here that lives 18 hours away, but posts memes and status updates that we agree with is our friend over the person next door whose political affiliation we're not so sure about. I'm, I'm talking to myself here, too, this morning, just now. We believe today that we can know just about everything we need to know about somebody from their Instagram feed. We've, in effect, inoculated ourselves against the danger of real relationship by substituting these relationships with an off and on button, or maybe, maybe better said, a like or an unfollow button. Are these relationships that we've created digitally 
easier? Probably. Because I can very, very quickly go mute someone who I'm tired of listening to. I can go on Twitter and mute entire words that I don't want to see on my feed. But that ability comes at a steep cost. And Pastor Aaron did a great job last week of kind of illustrating to us what this culture of loneliness and this epidemic of loneliness is doing to us mentally, emotionally, and physically. And when we couple that with an American culture that champions each of us minding our own business. <laughs> How many of you grew up being told that? I did. Mind your own business. And a country and a culture that champions individualism over collective belonging, and a world that has just come out of a, a pandemic that imposed isolation on us. And friends, we're in a really dangerous spot. The number of Americans who report that they have zero friends has tripled in the last 30 years. And actually, if you take women out of that equation, if you just ask men, that number almost doubles. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, we were not created to be independent, autonomous, or self-sufficient. We were made to live in a humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God and in a loving and humble interdependency with others. Our lives were designed to be community projects. Yet the foolishness of sin tells us that we have all we need right within ourselves. So we've decided to settle for relationships that never go beyond the casual. Maybe this morning we realize we can admit, especially with the wonderful teaching we've had the last two weeks, we can come to this place and we can say, I realize that I need community. But we're hiding in a sea of people that are in the same place, each of us submitting an unauthentic version of ourselves, whether that be online or in person, content with surface relationships with a lot of people instead of deeper relationships with a few. There's a, a doctor who's done a lot of study into this, into this subject. Um, his name is Dr. Robin Dunbar, and he's with the University of Oxford. And he established this, this concept called Dunbar's number. And he recognized that the size of a human being's, any given human being's social network might be limited by our, our neocortex, or the part of our brain that controls our higher brain functions. And what emerged from his work was this theory that we physically, mentally cannot handle a close connection with more than 150 people in our lives. Our brain can't do it. And that within that group, your closest 15 relationships are the most crucial for your mental and physical health. In fact, some of, some of the uh, takeaways from his research tell us that our good friends tend to fire up our nervous system and trigger, and trigger the release of these feel-good neuropeptides that we call endorphins. 
So whether you're laughing with a friend or feeling him or her touch your shoulder in sympathy, the resulting rush of endorphins actually helps have a positive impact on your immune system. So these close relationships in which we willingly, deeply engage with other people actually has a physical benefit. It helps us be healthier people emotionally, mentally, even physically. Now, it hasn't always been this way, this state of being that we're living in and um, that, that we're content with these casual relationships. Um, historically, and certainly outside of the United States, living in a much more communal manner is much more common. In fact, Brene Brown, who's an author and a researcher and all sorts of things, did, did a, an interesting case study on a group in Uganda, a group of women who daily would meet to do their laundry at a river. And one day, somebody came in and introduced washing machines into their community, thinking, hey, this is so, we're going to save them all this time because they're going to be able to do laundry automatically. Well, the rate of depression among this group of women in Uganda skyrocketed because they had lost that connection and that deep time spent with one another on a regular basis. If we turn to our attention, and perhaps this is a super predictable turn this morning, (laughs) to Jesus' ministry, we get some pretty glaring evidence that the creator of our minds and souls and bodies knew that these type of deep relationships were vital in our lives. If we take a look at the third chapter of Luke, verses 12 through 16, we read this. Now, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named his apostles. Simon, who he called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. How many did Jesus choose? How many? Twelve. He chose 12 people with whom he would actively seek deep relationship during his time in ministry on earth. Now, did he have moments with many, 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 many more people? Absolutely. He had relationship with many, many, many more people. But he chose 12 with whom to invest deeply. He was essentially beginning the first, as we say in church words, small group discipleship experience. He invested in these 12 with a bigger plan in mind. He invited them intentionally. It's interesting to me that Jesus encountered these men not because they came into a synagogue or met him at church, but because he went out and sought them out intentionally. He was standing by a lake when he called Simon, Andrew, James, and John. He encountered Levi or Matthew in his tax booth. These people were not gathered together because they shared similar backgrounds or similar interests or careers or even because they looked to be the most supportive of Jesus' ministry. (laughs) It's probably the very opposite of what we would do if we were choosing a friend group. 
And yet this is how Jesus chose to set up his ministry of multiplication to the world. He invested in 12 who were then called to go and pass good news to others. These were the 12 that would submit to the life, as Pastor Greg told us a couple of weeks ago, of discipleship, that, and they would submit to living a life that was not for themselves. They were called to live, to form a worldwide missional community, one that was outwardly facing they were called to make disciples who would then go make disciples who would then go make disciples to go live out the teaching of Jesus all over the world. One of the definitions of the Greek word for the, the word apostle, the Greek root for the word apostle or apostolos is envoy or messenger. It's like Jesus knew that there was something about this small group of people that he was investing in, that he would engage in deep life together with, that would be compelling, a compelling way to share the good news of the gospel with the world. I believe Jesus introduced this idea of small groups of people being meaningfully engaged with one another so that they can meaningfully engage in a hope-filled way to the world. If, if we take our call to be disciples who make disciples— and if we are to grow in our relationship as disciples and called to live in community, then we, are, we have to prioritize this idea of cultivating deep relationships in a small group discipleship format. And just transparently for a moment, Shane and I, um, you know, have the privilege of getting to to work alongside the staff and, and champion this idea of, of small group community within our larger church. And so it's a personal conviction for me, for us. But this is an idea that Jesus modeled, and that Jesus modeled it, we have to give credence to it as well. And it's for this reason that you will perhaps annoyingly so <laughs> hear us talk over and over and over again about community groups here at Bentonville Community Church. We know there's tremendous value in you showing up on Sunday mornings. And we all benefit from this gathering well and worship. But we also know that there's something incredibly valuable about finding a group of people with whom you are going to walk out your faith. And that's why, as a church, we have something called community groups. These are smaller groups of people here at BCC who regularly meet for fellowship, for meaningful discussion, and for outreach. Now, these groups of people are a lot like that motley crew of disciples. <laughs> they have different opinions. They have different affiliations. They have different backgrounds. They sit in different political parties. <gasps> and that's a good thing. Because these people are committed to doing life together with God in the picture. We believe there's something truly important to the model that Jesus gave us for living life connected in a meaningful way. And it's vital for us 
as a church to see community groups as a way to engage and invite those around us at our jobs, in the grocery store, in our neighborhoods to encounter Jesus. So today I want to suggest to you that there are four big whys behind why participation in a small group or a community group is vital to your growth as a Christian. The first one is this. Small group discipleship is who God is. If we are to be effective disciples, we have to understand who God is and that God is by definition, by nature, a communal God. He is eternally one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We hear these words from Jesus in the book of John. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all I have said to you. God is the unity of a community of persons who love each other and live together in harmony. We need community and we seek relationship because we were formed in God's image. And God's nature is both interrelationship and interconnectedness. We feel this need. The reason I spent my entire childhood desperate to belong somewhere is because that is a God-given desire. God put that in us. As Pastor Aaron has reminded us last week, he said it's not good for man and woman to be alone. Humans are called to relationship with one another. So this deep need that we feel is from God himself. Author Beth Felker-Jones puts it this way, relationship the desire for a relationship goes right to the reality of the truth about God. God's love can mean only one thing, that the Father sent the Son to die as an atoning sacrifice, and that the Holy Spirit has come to continue the ministry of Jesus and to bring about our response to God in the form of obedience and praise. God's love is relational. God's love is self-giving, and that love transforms us in ways that match God's love. You see, by very definition, the word personal <laughs> requires us to be in relationship with one another, right? We, have, we can have a personal relationship with God even because the three persons of the Trinity exist in relationship to one another, and I know that's a mysterious, hard thing. We could talk for another two hours about the mysteries of the Trinity and how all that works and how to speak well of it, but what we need to know and what we need to understand is that we are known and loved by a personal God so that we can, in turn, know and love one another. That brings me to my second why, and the second reason why small group discipleship is important is because it helps us one another, each other. Did you know that in the New Testament there are 94 verses that include the word alelone? So our words one another in English are actually one word, 
in Greek, and that, work, that word is alelone. And this concept of one anothering each other is reiterated over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. So we believe that the relationships that are formed within a small group discipleship environment helps us fulfill these many, many commands of Scripture that concern God's people, the church, loving one another and loving others beyond these walls. 47 of those 94 verses, so let's just call it half, give direct instruction to the followers of Jesus. One-third of them speak to unity. Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. Romans 15.7, accept one another. Galatians 5.15, don't challenge or envy one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Colossians 3.13, bear with and forgive one another. Confess sins to one another, James 5.16. A number third of those commandments deal with what it means to love one another. Eleven, Eleven of those with that phrasing just by itself. Love one another. Eleven times, love one another. Through love, serve one another, Galatians 5.13. Be devoted to one another, Romans 12.10. Speak truth to one another, Ephesians 4.25. Encourage one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24. Pray for another, one another, James 5.16. Regard one another as more important than yourself, Philippians 2.13. We can only do any of those things in the context of relationship. Right relationship with God and right relationship with one another. And I would argue that we can only do these things well in the context of deep relationship. Small groups are a way to practice these commands so that they can flow outward from those relationships to others in our lives. That brings me to the third point of why small group discipleship is important, and that is that it fills the Sunday-Monday gap. And if you don't know what the Sunday-Monday gap is, let me describe it to you. It is very easy in these four walls to feel equipped, and I believe you are well-equipped to go live out your faith when you leave this place. But tomorrow morning, you're going to have that hard conversation with a client you are going to have to encounter that family member who drives you up the wall. You're going to have to engage with the neighbor next door who you've just decided you can't stand. And all of a sudden, what happened on Sunday morning is a whole lot more difficult to live out on Monday morning. Now, in the 1700s, one of our theological ancestors, his name is John Wesley, he put his finger on this same gap and noticed that a lot of people were struggling with growing lukewarm in their faith after their initial profession of faith in Jesus and, and felt this disconnect between attending worship services and living out their day-to-day -day lives. So Wesley began this small group discipleship format that he called classes. And these were groups of 11 people plus one leader, do you see a pattern there? 11 plus 1 is 12. 12. These 12 people met weekly to pray. They would read the Bible. They would discuss their spiritual lives. And they would gather money for the poor. Those small groups became their living learning laboratories. 
And the group soon grew in their popularity and in their participation. And out of the fervor that he witnessed in those groups, one of John Wesley's most famous quotes arose, do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can by all the means you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. Wesley so believed in the power of this small group discipleship that he actually required you to be a part of a small group before he would allow you to join the church. That's how committed he was to this idea. And just to give you a feel for how deeply engaged these groups were, let me give you some of the weekly questions with which they wrestled. Every week, these were the questions they asked themselves, and just a few of them. It's a long list. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? Do I pray about the money I spend? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Is Christ real to me? Now, my intention this morning is not to scare you off. <laughs> So let me tell you that today's small groups may be engaged a little bit differently, although I would argue that the heart of our small groups is to get to just this very place. If you try a community group at BCC, you'll likely find a few minutes of fellowship and community in our group. It's often some discussion about the Razorbacks <laughs> before you dive into some time for prayer. And then an honest discussion of a topic or a sermon and how it's relevant to our everyday lives. It might be a discussion about what it means to love someone who is seemingly out for you in your workplace. It might look like talking about what it means to deal with a family situation that's hard. It might be a conversation about a particular news headline that is confusing or troubling. And besides those formal Sunday or Wednesday or whatever day it is, besides those formal meetings, it may look like Super Bowl parties, Friday night football games, dinners out. Our community groups are meant to be a place of encouragement, a place of deep connection, a place of equipping, and a place to help you work out your faith in a practical way. Finally, I want to suggest to you that the reason that small group discipleship is important is that it keeps us on mission. When Jesus commissioned his disciples in Matthew 28, he was clear about what they were called to go do. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are missing something if we allow small group discipleship to become insular. Our small groups here at BCC have a multiplication goal, just as Jesus did. We know that we cannot have small groups that become large in number, but we do want to have a large number of small groups because we believe, just as Janelle reminded us this morning, that we are, these are a crucial element in our identity as a community-focused church. 
Just as the disciples were sent out, we believe that our community groups are sent out people. And it's often in the sending and in the serving that that deep relationship is forged. Our community groups are encouraged to dig into God's word and to find where their passions in life or their holy discontent with the world intersect with the mission of God. They're encouraged to bring insights from their careers, from their own neighborhood interactions, from their community encounters to discern how they might go be the hands and feet of Jesus. Perhaps if we have 150 people attend church on a Sunday morning, each trying to act individually, we would feel overwhelmed by all of our individual missions and desires. But if we had those same 150 people organized into eight or nine groups of people with coordinated missions and plans to go out and love Northwest Arkansas well, we become a powerful force for the love of God who can partner well. This looks like working with groups like Canopy for refugee resettlement. It looks like serving in a youth basketball league. It looks like raking leaves for a neighbor who's unable to do it on his or her own. It looks like finding out the needs of our elementary school counselors. It looks like seeking deep relationship with others because we've been given deep relationship with God. I know, I know that there are a lot of things that vie for our time today, even on Sunday mornings. And I know that even one extra hour per week can seem daunting. But what I want to suggest to you is that a decision to engage in small group discipleship is not something extra to fit into your calendar, but it is something missing if it's not already there. We believe at this church that we need each other here. And I I, I would love to look each one of you individually in the eye and communicate to you how much we need you here. We believe there's something powerful that happens in the context of these small groups, and we believe there's a place for you. If I can share with you just a minute, just for a minute in closing about what small group discipleship has meant to me and Shane at this church for almost 20 years. These are the people who have helped us as we were new parents and knew absolutely nothing. We still know nothing, right? but knew absolutely nothing about what we were doing. These were the people that would say, let us sit with your kids for two hours so that you can go see a movie. These are the people who, when we have been trying to navigate family stuff that seems insurmountable, have given a listening ear and a biblical perspective on how to best navigate situations. These are the people with whom we bring our work frustrations and leave it laid out on Sunday mornings. These are the people with whom we have spent hours in the gym loving our community through basketball and cheerleading. And these are the people who I had a beautiful picture of this week as we got to celebrate something so cool with our oldest daughter who showed up because they love us, and because they love well. I don't know if you have that, but I know where you can get it. And it's in the context of small group discipleship. It's not easy always, 
we've walked through disagreements as a group. We've navigated a lot of uncertainty. There's no way we're all going to believe the same thing about all the non-essentials all the time. But we are bound together by Jesus. So I want to close with this, and I know that group participation is, as someone who skews a little introverted, I know this makes me nervous too, but here's what I would like this morning. And, and I, am, I am a salesperson Monday through Friday, so I'm resisting the, the urge to give you the strong pitch at this point. Um, but here's what I would like to do. If you are currently part of a community group, would you stand for me for just a second? I'm sorry to put you on the spot. You can come beat me up later. If you are not currently part of a community group, this is not to single you out. And I'm not going to give you a hard sell and tell you to go talk to one of these people and get involved in a community group next week, although I'd love that if the Lord's moving that way in your heart. But what I would like to invite you to do today is make eye contact with one of these people, and then you guys can sit down. Make eye contact with one of these people and just go say hi. Just go say hi if you don't know them. Start a relationship. Start a conversation. And for all of you that stood up, you got a higher responsibility than everybody else <laughs> because you can go in and make invitations. But out of a discussion that happened in our community group this morning, we realize that a deep connection has to start with a relationship. So I want to invite you as you leave this place today to find somebody to say hello to, maybe to invite to lunch, and to be open to the idea that maybe God has something for you through small group discipleship here at BCC. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. God, I thank you that we get to we get to seek relationship because of it's because it's who you are. And God, I thank you that we can even hope to love because of the love you've given to us. And God, I thank you that the body of this church family is not content with just keeping the status quo, God, but that we believe that we're called to go and forge community here and elsewhere. And so, Lord, would you empower us? Would you break down the walls that tell us that this is weird or embarrassing or strange, God, and just help us to be obedient, to move forward, to seek relationship, and to share your love in meaningful ways. We love you, Jesus. Amen.